Hello, this is episode 22 of The Hate Crime Files, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence, motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence Heath. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for young children. Listener discretion is advised. This is part two of a two-part series on the murder of Ahmad Arbery. If you haven't already, pause this episode and go back and listen to episode 21 for part one of this story. Ahmad Arbery's life was at a crossroads on February 23rd when he laced up his shoes for his daily run. Born on May 8, 1994, the youngest of three children, he grew up answering to affectionate nicknames like Maud and Quez. His family remembers him as a quiet, reserved teenager who never seemed to go out with friends much. He lost that reserve when he joined Brunswick High School's class of 2012. Like his brother Marcus before him, Ahmad tried out for the school football team. Given his slender build, he wasn't exactly an obvious choice for a linebacker spot on the junior varsity squad. But his former coach and U.S. history teacher Jason Vaughn said he had incredible speed. He was undersized, but his heart was huge, Vaughn said. Former teammate Demetrius Frazier grew up down the street from Ahmad and knew him most of his life. Frazier remembers the quieter moments they spent together in high school, the two friends playing video games, shooting hoops, and wolfing down peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, chips, and hot dogs. Those were happy times, Frazier recalls, before Ahmad was bogged down with legal problems. Even though his pro football hopes were dashed, Ahmad still had hopes, dreams, and plans for himself. Ahmad was just ready to put himself in a position to be where he wanted to be in life, Fraser said. That's what they took from him. Ahmad knew there was racism in his southern Georgia community. His mother, Wanda Cooper Jones, remembers talking with him about Trayvon Martin's murder in 2012. She and her son agreed that Martin was wrongly profiled and killed. Ahmad would have his own experience in 2017 when he was profiled and nearly tased by police for sitting alone in his car at a local park, rapping along with music. Wanda Cooper Jones said she raised her son to avoid people who racially profiled him. Advice Ahmad probably remembered that Sunday afternoon on his regular run. 
He had conversations about it with his best friend, Akeem Baker, but they never discussed feeling as though their lives were in danger. We weren't just out here in Brunswick living in fear, Baker said. We just understood that everything wasn't all love everywhere we went. Baker grew up in the same apartment complex and remembered desperately wanting to be Ahmad's friend in the second grade because he found him so likable. He brought snacks to share at the bus stop to initiate conversation with Ahmad, and the two began sitting together. Baker said he always admired Aubrey, affectionately known as Maud, for his confidence, sense of humor, and selflessness. He would offer the shirt off his back and give you his last if needed, Baker said. If Maud had ten dollars and I had nothing, he would make sure I had half of what he had. Baker remembers Arbery was his hype man, who would give Baker a playful nudge to freestyle rap lyrics or do high-intensity workouts in the gym. Arbery would invite him over to work out, or the two would hit the gym at the local YMCA. They would run together on the Sydney Lanier Bridge in Brunswick. He was just a real genuine person, Baker said. He spoke and did everything from a place of love. Ahmad attended South Georgia Technical College for a year and a half after graduating from high school, but had to leave when money got tight for the family. His mother was also putting her older son and daughter through school at the time. A former high school athlete, Ahmad was dedicated to staying fit and counting his calories. He turned their garage into a gym with workout equipment, including a bench press. And he ran. If it wasn't drenching rain, Ahmad ran, Cooper Jones said. He got his run in every day. Cooper Jones accepted that, like many of his peers, Ahmad was living at home as a young adult, taking a breather to figure out his future. Still, she had one rule. If you have the energy to run the roads, you need to be on the job. So Ahmad worked at his father's car wash and landscaping business and had previously worked at McDonald's. He also helped out around the house, moving heavy furniture or fixing electrical outlets. Ahmad probably wasn't thinking about his past that Sunday afternoon. He had plans for the future. His mother said he intended to go back to South Georgia Technical College and complete his training to become an electrician like his uncle's. His future stretched out before him like the familiar roads he jogged along every day, but Ahmad probably wasn't thinking about the future. He was likely just thinking about his run and where it would take him that day. It would take him across U.S. Route 17, the four-lane highway that travelers took to the resorts on Jekyll Island also served as a boundary between black and white in the area. Ahmad's route that day took him across the highway and into the predominantly white neighborhood of Satilla Shores that featured several homes decorated with Trump flags, one bearing the president's smiling face with the phrase, Make Liberals Cry Again. If Ahmad noticed the signs, they probably didn't bother him. 
Given his daily jogging habit, he'd likely run through the neighborhood before. What he did notice was a home under construction in the community. He'd seen it before and perhaps stopped to check it out, like many other people who passed through the neighborhood. The site was wide open with no doors or windows. Anyone could walk through, and security camera videos later showed that many people did. Security video would show that Ahmad stopped and entered the construction site during his run that afternoon. Maybe he was thirsty, and he knew there were a couple of water sources on the site. Perhaps as a budding electrician, he couldn't resist taking a quick peek to check out the electric wiring. We don't know why Ahmad stopped at the construction site that afternoon. We only know that he stayed there for about three minutes and then left to continue his run. He took nothing from the construction site. As he continued his run, Arbery couldn't have known that his mere presence had sparked at least two calls to 911 from the neighborhood. At 1.08 p.m., one caller reported there was a black guy in a white t-shirt in Satilla Shores on a property under construction. And you said someone's breaking into it right now, the operator asked. No, it's all open. It's under construction. And he's running right now. There he goes right now, the caller said. The operator said she was sending police to the scene, but added, I just need to know what he was doing wrong. He's been caught on camera before a bunch. It's kind of an ongoing thing out here, the caller says. Neither call mentioned any criminal activity. Maybe Ahmad knew as he continued his jog that they aren't used to seeing a lot of black faces around here, as one of the few black residents of the neighborhood said. Ahmad couldn't have known that 64-year-old Satilla Shores resident Gregory McMichael, a retired Glen County police officer who was involved in a previous investigation and prosecution of Arbery in 2013, saw him running down the street. McMichael had been encouraged by a former fellow officer to act as a vigilante two months earlier. In a text message sent on December 20th, 2019, an officer listed simply as Officer Rash told homeowner Larry English to call McMichael if the motion sensor camera at the construction site showed any action. Greg is retired law enforcement and a retired investigator from the DA's office, the message read. He said, please call him day or night when you get action on your camera. Gregory McMichael saw Arbery jogging and decided that he fit the profile of a suspect in several recent robberies and break-ins alleged to have happened in the neighborhood. However, as we noted in part one, only one burglary had been reported to police in the months before Arbery was killed, and that was the theft of a handgun from 34-year-old Travis McMichael's unlocked truck. Gregory McMichael called 911 to report a black male running down the street. During the call, he was heard saying to his son, God damn it, come on, Travis. The father and son armed themselves. Greg McMichael, with his 357 Magnum issued to him during his active time as a police officer, and Travis with his shotgun.
The pair took off after Ahmad in Travis's pickup truck, with Travis at the wheel and his father riding in the truck bed. The McMichael's neighbor, 50-year-old William Bryan, was in his front yard when he saw Arbery jog past and followed the McMichaels in their truck. Brian's attorney, Kevin Goff, said Brian got into his car and followed because he wanted to get a picture of Arbery. Brian captured video of what unfolded in the next minutes. Ahmad probably didn't know he was being pursued at first. Not until the three men tried to corner him. Brian with his truck and the McMichaels with theirs. They tried three times to block him and he managed to avoid them twice, running around their vehicles and continuing his run. It's impossible to know what Ahmad's thoughts and feelings were at this point. He was a young black man running through a predominantly white neighborhood in southern Georgia, being pursued by three white men in automobiles, at least two of them armed. Did he believe they just wanted to talk? As one of them shouted at him, did he think they were profiling him? Did he think he was in danger if he stopped? Was he afraid? Did he remember his mother's advice to avoid people who would profile him as he ran around their vehicles and tried to continue his run? When they finally cornered him and he found himself confronted by one white man wielding a shotgun and another standing in the truck bed with a handgun, did he believe his life was in danger? Did he think his only choice was to fight for his life with the only weapon he had, his bare hands? These are unanswerable questions because Ahmad Arbery was silenced that afternoon by three gunshot wounds as he struggled with Travis McMichael over the shotgun. Ahmad lay in the street, bleeding and dying by the time Glen County Police Department arrived on the scene. Greg McMichael had blood on his hands from turning over Ahmad's body to search for weapons and finding none. McMichael claimed that when Travis exited the truck with his gun, Ahmad began to violently attack him, and the two started fighting over the shotgun, at which point Travis fired a shot, and then a second later there was a second shot. Gregory McMichael said Arbery fell face down on the pavement with his hand under his body. The officers took down their former colleague's version of events and then let the McMichaels and Brian go home. Later that day, a police investigator called Wanda Cooper Jones and told her that her son had been involved in a burglary and was killed by the homeowner. An inaccurate version of what happened. Cooper Jones said she knew it couldn't be right. Ahmad's funeral was held on February 29th at New Springfield Baptist Church in Alexander, Georgia, and he was buried in the church cemetery. Seventy-four days would pass before arrests were made or charges filed in Arbery's death. 
a timeline by Glenn County's Public Information Officer Matthew Kent said that Brunswick Area District Attorney Jackie Jackson's office learned of the investigation around 3.30 p.m. on February 23rd. The DA's office advised that there needed to be further follow-up and the detectives would be contacted the following day by the DA from the Waycross Judicial Circuit. The McMichaels were deemed not to be flight risks and officers were advised by the DA's office that no arrests were necessary at the time, Kent wrote, adding that Glenn County Police Detectives were in touch with George Barnhill, the district attorney for the neighboring Waycross Judicial Circuit, from February 24th. Johnson has come under criticism for her handling of the case. The police at the scene went to her saying they were ready to arrest both of them, Commissioner Alan Booker told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. These were the police at the scene who had done the investigation. She shut them down to protect her friend, McMichael. Commissioner Pete Murphy added that Glenn County Police told him that although officers at the scene determined they had probable cause to arrest the McMichaels, they were told not to make the arrest by representatives of the DA's office. The information I had was that there was a shooting involving Greg McMichael and his son, Johnson told a local news outlet. There seemed to be a self-defense issue and they didn't know whether they could make an arrest. On February 27th, Brunswick Area District Attorney Jackie Johnson recused herself from the case as Gregory McMichael had worked as an investigator in her department for over 30 years before his retirement in 2019. The case then went to Waycross District Attorney George Barnhill, who defended the McMichaels and Bryan's actions. Barnhill advised detectives before noon on February 24th that the act was justifiable homicide and for detectives to continue their investigation. In a memo on April 2nd, Barnhill wrote that the McMichaels and Brian were in hot pursuit of a burglary suspect with solid first-hand probable cause, and that their intent was to stop and hold this criminal suspect until law enforcement arrived. Barnhill added that under Georgia law, this is perfectly legal. Georgia's Stand Your Ground law passed in 2006 states that a person using force in self-defense has no duty to retreat and has the right to stand his or her ground. Barnhill wrote that Arbery initiated the fight and that under Georgia law, Travis McMichael was allowed to use deadly force to protect himself. Before blaming the victim, whose mental health records and prior convictions help explain his apparent aggressive nature and his possible thought pattern to attack an armed man. Arbery's family requested that Barnhill be removed from the case because his son formerly worked alongside Gregory McMichael in the Brunswick District Attorney's Office 
and had personally handled a felony probation revocation case involving Arbery, who was convicted of shoplifting and violating probation in 2018. The Arbery case wasn't Barnhill's first brush with controversy over an issue regarding race. In 2016, he charged civil rights activist Olivia Pearson, the first black woman ever elected to the Douglas County Commission, with felony voter fraud. Barnhill threatened to imprison Pearson for 15 years after she helped a first-time voter use an electronic voting machine in October 2012. Pearson's lawyers called the prosecution racially motivated, and a jury took just 20 minutes to find her not guilty. It was an unusual prosecution. At the time, only 10 of the 154 illegal voter assistance investigations in Georgia over the previous three years had been referred to a prosecutor. Most were closed without a ruling or dismissed, but Barnhill's office relentlessly pursued what they saw as an important case through two trials over two years. Barnhill's prosecution of Pearson happened in the larger context of a campaign by then-Secretary of State, now Governor Brian Kemp, to prioritize vigilance against voter fraud. Voting rights groups flagged Barnhill's prosecution as part of an evident and well-orchestrated attempt to intimidate black voters. After all, Pearson was accused of merely showing a young woman how to use a voting machine, not of influencing her vote. Barnhill recused himself from the Ahmad Arbery case on April 7th over a conflict of interest. The case was transferred to Thomas Durden, the district attorney for Georgia's Atlantic Judicial Circus, on or about April 13th, according to a letter Durden released on May 5th. He announced his intention to present the case to the next available Glenn County Grand Jury for consideration of criminal charges against those involved in the death of Mr. Arbery. Durden, the district attorney in nearby Hinesville, took the case and had it for more than three weeks before the video became public and he called in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. On May 5th, a graphic video of the encounter between Ahmaud Arbery and the McMichaels began to circulate online. Recorded from inside Brian's vehicle, the footage shows Ahmad running when a white pickup truck blocks his path with Travis McMichael standing next to the open driver's side door and Greg McMichael standing in the truck bed. Ahmad and Travis struggle over the shotgun. Muffled shouting can be heard before three shotgun blasts ring out, and Ahmad Arbery falls to the ground, dying. Defense attorney Anthony Tucker leaked the video to local radio station WGIG. Tucker consulted with the McMichaels but does not represent them. It wasn't two men with a Confederate flag in the back of a truck going down the road and shooting a jogger in the back, Alan Tucker told the New York Times. It got the truth out there as to what you could see. My purpose was not to exonerate or convict them. The video sparked widespread outrage 
and calls for justice in the case. On May 7th, sheriff's deputies and Georgia Bureau of Investigation agents arrested Travis and Gregory McMichael. They were booked into the Glen County Jail on charges of felony murder and aggravated assault, a stunning turn of events in a case that had been investigated for more than two months. Thirteen hours later, GBI Director Vic Reynolds told reporters another arrest could be forthcoming. We're investigating everyone involved in the case, including the individual who shot the video, Reynolds said, implying that William Bryan could still be arrested for his role. Director Reynolds says they agreed on charges around 5 p.m. after investigating the case for a little over 24 hours. Again, I can't speak on behalf of what anyone else sees or doesn't see about a case, but I will tell you that we base our decisions on two things. One are the facts, and the other is the law. Whatever the facts are, we apply the law to it. If the law says what the facts are is a felony murder, then we take the warrants for it. I'm very comfortable in telling you there's more than sufficient probable cause in this case for felony murder said Director Reynolds. On May 8th, the McMichaels were denied bond. On May 11th, Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr asked the GBI to investigate possible prosecutorial misconduct by Brunswick Judicial Circuit District Attorney Jackie Johnson and George Barnhill of the Waycross Judicial Circuit. The U.S. Department of Justice also announced that it was considering a request from Carr to determine whether federal hate crime charges should be pursued against the McMichaels. Carr also assigned Cobb County District Attorney Joyette M. Holmes, who is African American, to take over the case from Durden, who asked to be replaced by a prosecutor with a larger staff because the case had grown in size and magnitude. Holmes served four years as a magistrate judge in suburban Cobb County before Governor Brian Kemp appointed her to fill the vacant district attorney's position last July. According to the Georgia Prosecuting Attorneys Council, Holmes is one of only seven black district attorneys in the state. Superior Court Judge Jeffrey H. Kite appointed 51-year-old Catham County Superior Judge Timothy R. Walmsley to preside over the case. William Bryan was arrested on May 21st. He was booked into Glen County Jail and did not enter a plea during a brief court appearance. The GBI released two warrants for Bryan. The false imprisonment warrant accuses Bryan of utilizing his vehicle on multiple occasions with the intention of confining and detaining Arbery. It adds that Brian lacked the legal authority to do so. Because of those actions, the second warrant states the accused did cause the death of another, Ahmad Arbery, during the commission of a felony. I can tell you that if we believed he was a witness, we wouldn't have arrested him, GBI Director Vic Reynolds said. So there's probable cause, and we're comfortable with that. As the warrants indicated, he's charged with an underlying felony, and he's also charged with felony murder, Reynolds added. 
We believe the evidence would indicate his underlying felony helped cause the death of Ahmaud Arbery. At a press conference at the Glen County Courthouse, Bryant's attorney, Kevin Goff, told reporters there was no precedent for the charges brought against his client. He added that Bryant turned himself in at the request of the GBI. The McMichaels appeared before Glynn County Chief Magistrate Judge Wallace E. Harrell on June 4th, marking the first time prosecutors presented some of the evidence against them. The McMichaels appeared wearing face masks via video from the Glynn County Jail, while Brian waived his right to appear. Prosecutor Jesse Evans of Cobb County in Metro Atlanta opened by saying the evidence would show the McMichaels chased, hunted down, and ultimately executed Arbery. New details about the shooting emerged during the trial. Georgia Bureau of Investigation Special Agent Richard Dial testified that Travis McMichael called Arbery a racial slur after shooting him. Dial testified that Brian mentioned the slur in a May 13th interview with the GBI, but had not mentioned it in previous interviews. He also alleged that Travis McMichael had used the slur numerous times on social media. Dial testified that investigators found a Confederate symbol on the toolbox in Travis McMichael's truck and several more racial slurs in messages on his phone. Mr. Bryan said that after the shooting took place before police arrival, while Mr. Arbery was on the ground, that he heard Travis McMichael make the statement effing N-word, Dial said in testimony to the court. The agent said there were numerous times Travis McMichael used the same slur on social media and messaging services, once messaging someone that he loved his job in the U.S. Coast Guard because he was out on a boat and there weren't any N-words anywhere. In another instance, sometime before the shooting, he replied in an Instagram message saying things would be better if someone had blown that N-word's head off, Dial testified. Agent Dial also alleged that Brian had several very concerning messages about race on his phone. There's evidence of Mr. Brian's racist attitude in his communications, and from that I extrapolate the reason why he made assumptions he did that day, Dahl said. Referring to comments found on Brian's cell phone, including when he was at an airport and remarked that he was glad there weren't many black people there, referring to black people with a racial slur. He saw a man running down the road with a truck following him, and I believe he made certain assumptions that were at least in part, based on his racial bias, Dial said. Brian told police he jumped into his truck and joined the chase after he saw the McMichaels drive past and yelled, Do you got him? Brian admitted to trying to block Arbery during the pursuit. When Brian didn't get a response, he went back into his residence briefly and then came back and cranks up his truck with the intention of a assisting in the pursuit, Dahl said. He made several statements about trying to block him in and using his vehicle to try to stop him, Dahl said under questioning by Travis McMichael's attorney, Jason Sheffield. 
his statement was that Mr. Arbery kept jumping out of the way and moving around the bumper and actually running down into the ditch in an attempt to avoid his truck. At this point, I would say Mr. Arbery was trying to escape, Dahl said. He's trying to get away. Dahl said that the McMichaels and Brian pursued Arbery for about seven minutes from the time a neighbor called 911 about Arbery's presence in the neighborhood to the time Greg McMichael called 911 to report the shooting. Brian started recording during the pursuit and eventually captured video of the shooting. As the McMichaels tried to head him off, Arbery turned and ran past Brian's truck and Brian struck Arbery with the side of his truck, Dial said. Investigators found a swipe from a palm print on the rear door of Brian's truck, cotton fibers near the truck bed that we attribute to contact with Mr. Arbery and a dent below the fibers, he said. At one point, Arbery was heading out of the Satilla Shores neighborhood where the defendants live, but the McMichaels forced him to turn back into the neighborhood and run past Brian, the agent said. That is when he struck, Arbery, Dahl said, and Arbery kept running with the McMichaels in pursuit. When the police arrived, Gregory McMichael told an officer in a conversation caught on body camera video that he didn't know if Arbery had taken anything from the construction site, but he had a gut feeling that Arbery was connected to burglaries in the area. Travis McMichael told police that he raised his shotgun at a distance of about 90 feet away and ordered Arbery to get on the ground. That's when Arbery ran around the passenger side of Travis's truck and the two men met in front of the truck. Gregory McMichael said he told police during the shooting that he said, don't shoot to his son. However, the 911 call which recorded his statement does not reflect that. Video footage shows him covering his son with his weapon. Asked by the McMichael's attorney if he believed Travis McMichael acted in self-defense, Dial said the opposite was true. I don't believe it was self-defense by Mr. McMichael. I believe it was self-defense by Mr. Arbery, Dial said. I believe Mr. Arbery was being pursued and he ran till he couldn't run anymore. And it was turn his back to a man with a shotgun or fight with his bare hands against the man with the shotgun. He chose to fight, he said. I believe Mr. Arbery's decision was just to try to get away, and when he felt like he could not escape, he chose to fight. In their closing arguments, the suspect's defense attorneys asked that the charges be dismissed. Travis McMichael's attorney, Jason Sheffield, said his client only wanted to speak to Arbery about the burglaries in the neighborhood. That escalated and Mr. Arbery attacked him in an aggressive way that caused Travis McMichael to fear for his safety, Sheffield said. Mr. Travis McMichael used self-defense when he was attacked by Mr. Arbery. Franklin Ho, Gregory McMichael's attorney, argued that his client should not be charged with murder since he didn't shoot Arbery. And Brian's attorney, K. 
Kevin Goff said his client did not know the McMichaels were allegedly acting unlawful when he saw them chasing Arbery and decided to help out. He does, with all due respect, what any patriotic American citizen would have done under the same circumstance, Goff said of Brian. The fact that Mr. Brian does not know what's going on is his legal defense. Evans bristled at Goff's comments, describing them as asinine assertions. Any American would have picked up the phone and called 911, Evans said. As for Travis and Gregory McMichael's request for charges to be dropped, he said the blood of that man is on two of these defendants' hands. Evans added, but for the actions of Gregory McMichael walking into his home and asking his son to arm up with him, Ahmad Arbery might very well be alive today. Judge Harrell rejected defense attorney's request to dismiss the charges. Harrell ordered the McMichaels and Brian to stand trial on the charges in Superior Court. Travis and Gregory McMichaels are charged with felony murder and aggravated assault. William Bryan is charged with felony murder and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. Georgia law defines felony murder as a killing caused by the commission of an underlying felony. It does not require intent to kill. The minimum penalty is life in prison with a chance of parole. The Hate Crime Files podcast is researched, written, produced, and hosted by Terrence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening. And to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks again for your support. I'll be back with another episode in two weeks. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about it, and consider leaving a positive review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other. <laughs>